All right. Hello and uh, welcome back to Make Your Own Damn Podcast, a podcast where we do a retrospective of the films of Troma Entertainment. I am Lucas Mangum and with me as always is my co-host Jeff Burke. What's going on, man? Oh, not too much. Uh, excited to talk about today's movie, which is one of the more popular uh, trauma films, Tromeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah. This one got a it, it got a not not just a review in the New York Times. It got a positive review in the New York Times. Yes, which is probably the first time, I'm going to guess first time any of Lloyd Kaufman's movies ever got a positive review in the New York Times. I would say and, it might be the only time. <laughs> yeah, admittedly I have not looked into it, but I feel pretty safe in making that guess. I was genuinely shocked when I saw that. I was, I was, you know, like looking up, you know, for research for the show, and then I saw like, yeah, it got this like rave review in the New York Times, which is bananas to me. Well... To start here, real quick, let's just get out of the way a summary of a description of this movie in case anyone listening to this has not seen Tromeo and Juliet. And and here, here's a fun fact if you have no idea about this movie. The title is a play on Romeo and Juliet. I hope I blew your mind there. Okay, so this description is taken from Troma's official website, which says... All the body piercing, kinky sex, and car crashes that Shakespeare wanted but never had. Join <laughs> Tromeo, Will Keenan, Juliet, Jane Jensen, and Lemmy of Motorhead as they travel through Manhattan's underground in search of climatic love, violence, and the American way. Tromeo and Juliet is thrust forward with hyperconnect performances and a cutting-edge soundtrack. Yeah, sounds about right, man. I remember... Um seeing the trailer for it on um, it was probably on toxic avenger or one of the trauma movies i rented um from hollywood video and just immediately wanting to see it because it just looked so crazy and like you know in the trailer it had that motorhead song playing over and over again and it was just like which also yeah. plays over and over again in the actual movie which yes that's true it's kind of entertaining <laughs> Yeah, they uh when they find a song that they like, they uh they tend to um they tend to <laughs> tend to loop it uh pretty frequently. I know and I think in the beginning of Toxic Avenger that um that workout song plays for like 20 minutes straight. Oh my god, yes, yes it does. <laughs> yes it does. And who and if you've ever seen Class of Newcomb High once, you have that theme song burned into your brain for the rest oh, of yeah. your life with oh, how yeah. much it played in that movie. Yep. Um, and this was, I guess, so I was wrong, um, in, 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 in my assumption, um, until I guess a few days ago, I assumed that, um, this was made specifically as a parody of the, um, Leonardo DiCaprio starring Romeo and Juliet movie, which came out, I guess the year before or something like that. It came out uh, around roughly the same time, but the yeah. uh, Leo DiCaprio one uh, predates it by just a little bit. Like it might be like yeah. six months, or at, the, at most, it's a full year. But they were released very close together, and a lot of people had that same assumption with Romeo and Juliet because they're both mid '90s updates of the Romeo and Juliet story. But in fact, Romeo and Juliet was started pre-production work as early as 1992. Yeah, yeah. So Lloyd Kaufman wrote the original screenplay by himself 
and it was supposedly all in iambic pentameter and not very good. <laughs> like I think everybody in the office hated it. Um, if I if I recall correctly. Well, I have here. Um, I have here about the uh, first drafts from the great. All I need to know about filmmaking, I learned. I learned from the Toxic Avenger by Lloyd Kaufman and James Gunn. So we'll be talking a lot about James Gunn in this episode. I yes, imagine. we will. <laughs> um, but in fact, yes, everyone in the office hated it. To uh, one of the quotes told to him by one of the office members was, "You can't make money off Shakespeare," which I thought was like a really interesting assumption. Um, <laughs> yeah. Michael Hertz, uh, his partner in Chum Entertainment, straight up refused the idea and just put his foot down and said, no, we're not making that movie. <laughs> and yeah, apparently the first script, um, it was actually, it was written by um, Lloyd Kaufman with assistance by Phil Rivo and Adam Deemer, who are apparently two trauma employees. I don't know who these people are. I'm kind of assuming they were, you know, people who were production assistants, people who worked in trauma yeah. entertainment. But yes, apparently it sucked. And it was completely in, uh, what's it, Ionic, I can Ionic never pentameter. Thank you. You're probably going to yeah. have to help me with that every time. That <laughs> word just like fucks with my speech impediment. <laughs> and uh, apparently the Toxic Avenger was in it, right? Like more prominently. Apparently so was Sergeant Kabuki Man. They each had actual roles in the movie. Now, what those roles were, I have no idea. I cannot find <laughs> that anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, they say, <laughs> I, I think they made the right decision when the when the movie was eventually finished in not having those two characters. In yeah, movie. it would have been distracting. I mean, there's enough self-referential stuff, and we'll probably get into that more uh, in the movie as is. I mean, without having them like actual characters as it exists you see two people dressed up as them dancing in one of the club scenes and yeah, yeah. that's that's it and there's and there's uh yeah um but geez i mean it, it really does it exists what i like about this movie and i guess in a way it's a precursor to terra firmer in that it's a trauma movie like set in a world where trauma movies exist yeah the um the uh was it Montague's and Capulets, the two uh two warring families in the story. Yeah. And this their whole breakup comes from a film studio that the two patriarchs used to run together and they split and the patriarchs are very thinly veiled parodies of Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz, and that the film studio that they split up is like uh, Silky Films, I believe yeah. is what they called it in the movie, mm-hmm. is very blatantly supposed to be trauma entertainment to such a degree that when they're showing clips of the old classy films they used to make, it's actually images of um, Lloyd Kaufman's old sex comedies. It's like, yeah. and now they make this crap, and then they show clips from one of the later uh, class of Newcomb High sequels, which <laughs> at least they can admit that those like uh, class of Newcomb High two and three are in fact crap, despite the fact yeah. that one of them has a giant killer. Uh, squirrel in it. The movie's still no good. (laughs) You know a movie's bad if you can't save it with a giant killer squirrel. I mean, that should just be a gimme right there. Right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I want to go back to the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio starring one a little bit, just because, like, even 
though this like predates it, you know, um, in terms of when it was developed and stuff, like I do feel like from a fan perspective, like it was cool to see like two versions of the Shakespeare play. Like, you know, like one is this pop, you know, pop music version that, you know, Boz Lerman directed and, and Leonardo DiCaprio's in. And this one is more like the, you know, the alternative and punk crowd, you know, kind of take on it. I actually, when I was in, um, so it would have been around like 96, so I would have been like, uh, I guess in late middle school at that time. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right, or maybe just being in high school. I don't know. I haven't looked in when those years were in quite a while. But yeah, like, you're my age, so you would have been in like seventh grade, sixth grade, something like that. Okay, yeah, so middle school. I would have been in middle school. My middle school actually took us one day to see the uh, Laz Berman's Romeo and Juliet. Wow. Yeah, we had to get a permission slip signed by our parents because it was a PG-13 movie. Ooh. And, <laughs> yes, of course mine signed for it. And my school actually took us to go see that movie. I really dug it. Now, admittedly, I haven't seen it since I was probably a teenager. But yeah. when I saw that as a teenager, which is obviously the target audience for yes. that movie, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really cool update on... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I definitely don't think it's a bad movie at all. Like, I um, I have fond memories of uh of watching it with um with my partner. So you know, it's a, you know, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's you know, uh, Baz Luhrmann's movies are always very um, they're just they're just great to look at, and I think like, I don't know, he does something interesting, you know, um, and this kind of feels like the other side of it. Tromeo and Juliet does, I mean. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's the uh, the Boz Luhrmann movie is definitely the slick Hollywood reinterpretation of Shakespeare. And as you said, this is like this is like the punk rock Shakespeare. Yeah. And this is like from the soundtrack to like the characters that we see in the movie, the types of environments that this movie takes place in of like fetish clubs and um, piercing parlors. Yeah. And like this, this is this is punk rock Shakespeare. Definitely, definitely. It's um, it's definitely got that vibe. Like it's like, yeah, it's like the whole cast looks like um, yeah, people you'd run into at a show. No, oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And that's probably how a lot of the people were probably cast for the movie was people from those scenes in New York yeah. City. And this definitely. is also like related to that. Like I think this is probably the first of the trauma Lloyd Kaufman produced movies that is truly in touch with what is the then current counterculture that somebody might be like, Oh, well, there's all these punk characters in return to Newcomb high. It's like, not really. They're just kind of character characters of punks. Like it's not actually really that related in any way to punk subculture. Um, though lots of punks like love the movie. This though is actually taking place in those actual real world environments and has people kind of like directly from those scenes. Like the, um, the movie opens with narration from Lemmy from Motorhead. I'm like, that might be the first high profile, uh, like counterculture cameo in a Lloyd Kaufman movie. Do you think, I, I wonder, you know, like, because I know that like long before this, like, you know, punks love them, love them some trauma movies, you know? And, uh, so I was wondering if like, this this might have been a love letter to their fans in a way. 
I, I kind of think it was. I mean, it's also interesting that this is on the heels of the um, uh, Sergeant Kabuki Mountain NYPD, the Toxic mm-hmm. Avenger sequels, and Troma's War, which we've previously talked about. They were all essentially failures for uh, Troma Entertainment, and they were all kind of attempts for Troma to break into new audiences and more mainstream audiences. Yeah. And this kind of feels like them going back to, we just don't give a fuck. That they've kind of been beaten back down by the industry for a good number of years in a row and just failure after commercial failure. And then this kind of seems to be like, well, if we're just going to fail all the time, we may as well have fun doing it. And weirdly enough, it's... It was more successful than all those other movies yeah. I just listed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think any of those got written up positively in the New York Times. No, no, they were not. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Um, Do you think, I don't know, like, do you think that part of it was uh, part of its success? I mean, I don't know. This is actually a dumb question now that I'm thinking of it. But I was going to say, like, I mean, part of its success is definitely due to James Gunn. I mean. Well, it was him bringing his voice to the screenplay. And though what's really interesting is. Uh, people like to give this movie a lot of credit over James Gunn's screenplay, and I 100% uh, agree with that, but not quite as much as what you think. That um, the James Gunn's uh, screenplay was actually the second draft, and what we are watching is like the third or fourth draft of the movie. That James oh. Gunn, that is interesting here, that it's some really interesting notes in here, that James Gunn, um, essentially a mutual friend, uh, uh, knew James Gunn and Lloyd Kaufman, and James Gunn had been getting some a little bit of notoriety in the underground literary scene in New York City. And this mutual friend basically said, like, Lloyd Kaufman, if you're looking for a writer, there's this guy, James Gunn, that seems to be doing some interesting things that are kind of in your same wheelhouse. Cool. You should approach him. And so Lloyd Kaufman did. And, uh, and when... James Gunn was already a Choma fan, and he talks about that his first, like, it's like, all right, so what do you want me to write first for you? And, like, Kaufman's like, well, I have this Chomeo and Juliet project that I've been trying <laughs> to get made. And James Gunn says that he was not interested in it at all. He thought it was a bad idea, it sounded dumb, and he kind of didn't really want to do it. Yeah. And the first James Gunn draft, draft was apparently really dark, really offensive, almost zero humor in it. It was such a degree that Lloyd Kaufman went, went back to him, had him do things like, you need to tone this down. Like, this is oh, too shit. much for a trauma audience. Like, it um, featured uh, that uh, Lloyd, I'm sorry, that Juliet was a stripper and that um, and that uh, uh, Tromeo was a crack dealer. Which, oh actually, I kind of like that a lot. Apparently, you know, the, yeah. whole balco- the whole balcony scene of, like, you know, partying and such sweet sorrow, that was supposed to be done in a private uh, booth in a strip cr- club with Juliet doing a private dildo scene, like, <laughs> dildo performance for Romeo. And I'm like, that actually, I, I kind yeah. of like that better than what we actually got in the final movie. That sounds more interesting to me. Uh, it's certainly more interesting than a cow costume. Although, I will say that thematically, the cow costume works because he's the foil to who she's supposed to marry, 
you know, who is like a meat mongol. So that's oh, yeah, kind of, I'm, I'm going to hold off before we get into the whole meat mongol thing, because I actually have some thoughts on that related. Okay. All right, cool. So then after there was this James Gunn uh, script, which was also over 120 pages long, which was Damn. way, way too long, um, uh, Lloyd Kaufman had him do a rewrite of it, which uh, that Kaufman himself assisted with. And that rewrite is essentially the version that we see on screen. There's vague mention that some other stuff continue to be rewritten afterwards. But so we kind of had like in this original script that was Lloyd Kaufman and some assistants, the second draft of a script, which was James Gunn and really like, so apparently the Lloyd Kaufman original script was really stupid and just everyone thought it was dumb. The, Lloyd Ca- the James Gunn draft was just dark and fucked up. And then the final version that we got is kind of like a melding of the mm. dark and uh, silliness. And yeah. So it was really a collaborative project between uh, Kaufman and Gunn. And what's also not credited, it's not, he's not credited anywhere, but I can find several interviews and in the book of both Kaufman and Gunn talking about, James Gunn also co-directed the movie. Even though yeah. he's not credited in it, everywhere, both Kaufman and Gunn himself, as of like interviews from just two, three years ago, talk about Gunn actually co-directed the movie, even though he gets no credit for it. Yeah, yeah, I did see that um, in, in one of the interviews I, I dug up today. Um, and, and you said you, you, you had the same one. The, uh, you, you actually found the same one I did. Uh, um, yes. The, uh, the Vice interview. They interviewed him, I guess... Oh gosh, I guess in 2017, as uh, I guess it would have been around the time Guardians 2 came out, maybe. Uh, 2017. Yeah, that sounds about like it's when one of the Guardians came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they do a retrospective. It's a it's a really great interview. If you just search for Vice and Tromeo and Juliet, you'll find it. You know, for anyone listening, you'll find it no problem. And it's a interviewer from Vice sitting down with both James Gunn. And Lloyd Kaufman talking about their experiences of working on the movie and kind of their how they feel about it, uh, you know, more than twenty years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. I um, I thought it was cool to just hear them kind of reminisce about it, and you know, um, uh, Lloyd told this story about you know his cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy and how James Gunn kind of introduced everybody to Lloyd as like his old boss or his first oh, boss. Can, can I read that little segment? Of yeah, there? Because uh, yeah, I definitely. really like what he said. I really like yeah. what Kaufman says is that the interviewer asked him, what was it like to be on set for a cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy? And Lloyd Kaufman responds with, I hated it because <laughs> it proved what a little footnote I, footnote I am. Oh, this is a real movie, and what I'm doing is bullshit. But James made a big speech to 3,000 people on set that day. This is Lloyd. He was my first boss, and when I make a movie, I channel him. Uh, he's way about, and then Kaufman continues speaking about Gunn, he's way above the idiots who make the rest of those mainstream movies. He's an auteur, and he's able to make movies in a really light, nice way. He's no yes man. Yeah, I like that a lot. He He seems to have, like, a lot of affection for James Gunn. Like even when I saw, when I saw the, uh, the toxic Avengers screening here in Austin um, and Lloyd was in attendance, like he, he just said so many nice things about, about James Gunn just said he was just like a real guy. It was, it was, it actually was oddly enough, like 
right before he got rehired for uh, Guardians 3, I guess. Well, we're going to get into that whole stuff yeah, later. Yeah. We need to hold that off later. I jump around a lot, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but just regarding them working together more, it's really funny in this all I need to know, all I learned about, all I need to know about filmmaking I learned from the Toxic Avenger, that um, uh, the gun co-wrote it with Lloyd, and in the section on, the chapter on Chomeo and Juliet, the book actually bounces back and forth between the two of them talking about their experiences. And keep in mind, James Gunn's a nobody at this point this book was written. Like, yeah. Slither had not come out yet. Super had not come out yet. He was only a guy working in Troma Studios. And the two of them talk so much shit on each other in the book. Yeah. That yeah. is hilarious. It is very, very funny. There's just all, as the book switches back and forth from them writing, they're just constantly making these snide comments about each other. But it's in a way that you could only do if it's with somebody you deeply loved as a friend. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Like it's, um, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a, I don't know. It's almost like a work in wrestling, you know, where you're like, like we, I'm pretending I'm gonna that I really hate this guy, but you know, we're probably friends on the road. <laughs> and so, like when they were trying to get this, there's this little great exchange that's from um, Lloyd Kaufman's perspective that I love, that I want to read here from it. And this is like when they're trying to just get the movie off the ground, that they finally have a finished script and combining their two, the two directions that they both went on their own versions. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're prepping work of about to start hiring people to get this movie made. Uh, they're talking, Kaufman's talking about a dinner him and Gunn had. And it says, Lloyd says, it's funny. You're at the beginning of your career with nothing to lose. So you're going all the way with this thing, making it as extreme as possible. I feel like I'm at the point in my career when I have everything to lose. So I'm going all the way with it. Somehow we're at two utterly different points in our lives, but in the exact same place. Mm. I look at James. He nodded. This burger's really good, he said. He didn't have much of a personality. (laughs) (laughs) I I just love that that little exchange that Kaufman has in there. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense, though, because, I mean, Kaufman is, like, kind of this, like, he's a big personality, so I, I almost feel like, you know, um, yeah, I think anybody, like, is going to be, like, slightly diminished in his presence, you know, because he is just a very, like, loud... Big and, guy. You know, yeah. Not, not physically large, he's physically small, he's like me, but just like me, we've, a small people have learned to adjust <laughs> with being boisterous and loud... Yes, boisterous was the exact word I was looking for. I couldn't find it though. <laughs> um, so, dude, um, did you um, with this movie? Like, it's crazy how many like faces are in this movie from like you know from like independent you know cinema uh, over the years. You know, like De- I think it's an early role for uh, Debbie Rochon. Yes, it is. It's one of her very first roles. Yeah. In which she yeah. actually lied about her age to get uh, cast. You're thinking of were... uh, you're thinking of Tif- Tiffany Shepis. Oh, she I'm lied. sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. I confused them. I was thinking of Tif- Tiffany Shepis, who's also in this movie, who lied yeah. about her age to be cast in it. Yes. But yes, but this is also still one of the very first roles of Debbie Rashawn, and then also I just mentioned uh, Tiffany Shepis. We of course have Lemmy from Motorhead doing. I'm sorry, awful narration yeah in the movie like i know people are so cool of like it's lemmy from motorhead 
but he does a really shitty performance. And according to James Gunn, who's an absolute dick, I was going to say in that in that Vice interview, there's 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 uh, there's some interesting things about that. Like, yeah, he was like a dick and like just really drunk and like he was drunk, harassing women. Did not want to read the lines as written. Said he was going to make up his own lines, but got too drunk to actually do that. And so James Gunn <laughs> claims he had to make up cue cards on the spot. And that when Lemmy is doing his narration scenes, he's actually reading off of cue cards that James Gunn is holding just off camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're supposed to say allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. Allegedly. <laughs> but, yeah. But uh, I, I've ne- all, all things aside here, I've never been much of a Motorhead fan, so that doesn't really bother me hearing that, uh, that yeah. Lemmy was apparently like a dick. Yeah, like I mean, I like some of their songs, but uh, unlike some of some of my other uh, metalhead friends, I, I would I, I I do not I did not worship at the man's feet. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I will even say like his parts in the movie are probably some of the only parts that didn't really stick with me. You know, over the years, like I was, you know, when I was watching it last night, I was like, I was like, man, I remember all of this except for those narration things. I didn't remember like what he said or, or how he, like how he delivered the lines or anything. So I have probably not seen Tromeo and Juliet in, I was thinking about it. Uh, it's probably been about 15 years since the last time I've seen this movie because, uh, you know, confession time, a lot of people talk about their favorite trauma movies. They normally cite Tromeo and Juliet as one of them. When I first saw it, I didn't really care for it that much. Yeah. And so it was never one of the ones I went to over, uh, like, all my revisits of, like, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma Media. And so I had not seen it until rewatching it here for this show. And now, after having all that time and watching it again, I still don't really care for it that much. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, ha- I have a lot of things to say about it. And I also, though, I see why everyone liked it so much. And I agree with you. I was really shocked at how much of the movie I remembered because mm-hmm. it kept being like, as soon as the scene would start, it'd be like, Oh yeah, this scene. I remember, I remember <laughs> this. Oh, I know it's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. Like I, I, I would actually, I thought you might've, you might've, been, you might've changed your mind on it because I know you like, uh, you, you do actually like, you'd actually like uh, romantic comedies. And this is like, one yeah. only it's traumatized, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like they kind of nailed like the romantic comedy better in some of their later movies. Let's put it that okay. way. Like, like uh, Terra Firmer and Poultry Guys, I think both have better like romantic subplots to them. Fair point. Fair point. Um, there's there's a lot of good stuff in this movie though, and I and, and you, like <laughs> I said, it it is one of my favorites. Um, I, I mean that scene it with uh. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, the scene where like Debbie Rashawn is like watching Tromeo and Juliet have sex in the glass tank, and she's like crying. Like, really, I don't know. That, that seems really good. Like, just really emotional, and like, I don't know, just really well framed. There's a general feel to the movie that is very '90s, and I don't mean this in any criticism. And yeah. in that interview with Vice, uh, Gunn and Kaufman talk about how. They purposely wanted to make the movie feel dated for the 90s, even though they were yeah. making it 
in the 90s, they wanted to really heavily lean into it in terms of like the cultures and what the people were doing and um, the soundtrack and that the movie would be purposely dated. And 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 regarding that, um, there's a great little segment here in the book that is Lloyd Kaufman talking about his perspective, his attitude he was approaching for making uh, this movie. And it's kind of a long paragraph, but I want to read the entire thing because I think it shows a lot of who Lloyd Kaufman kind of is as a person and where he was as a person making this movie, mm-hmm. which is also why I think this movie speaks to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, let's say here, quote, some of the essential aspects of Romeo and Juliet are as applicable today as they were in the time of Shakespeare. Today, the old are still feeding on the dreams of the young. My generation, the baby boomers, the largest segment of society has manipulated the world to suit its own economic desires. The boomers trumpeted peace and emotional freedom in the 60s. Now they've given way to a blind elitism which preaches coolness over feeling. Meanwhile, they bombard today's kids with rehashed 60s music and movies and big-budget versions of 60s TV shows. These boomers have thus plasticized their own past, making the values they once trumpeted no more real than the Partridge family, and therefore no longer dangerous to the status quo. That is themselves. Contemporary Americans in their teens and 20s have turned inward, concocting their own universe of the cool, cold, and uncaring. To me, they can hardly be blamed. It's the same emotional response a man has after being repeatedly raped in prison. It's a natural reaction to being fucked. Damn. No, that sounds about right, man. I mean, it definitely, like, when I think about, like, when it became my favorite movie, it was like, and, like, how I was, like, where my head was at at the time, I was like, yeah, like, yeah, it was just a very, like, it was just very it, resonant, like, you know, being a, being a weirdo in love, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's very, I, though, like, on my critique of it, I feel, and this is, like, a very 90s thing, which I feel hasn't aged well with a lot of content from the 90s, that it's very kind of pointless nihilism, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion, in that it's kind of saying everything sucks, but doesn't really have a road to how to make things better at all. It's just kind yeah. of whiny to me the overall movie feels kind of whiny to me and i was like remembering of like when i was a kid in the 90s like i never got into grunge music at all because i just found it purposely whiny it was like oh things are bad but things are bad and then when i found kind of like punk when it's like things are bad and this is who you should be angry at and here's roadmaps of how you yourself can work outside of the system that was the type of messaging that really spoke to me. And that's the type of messaging which we later see in Lloyd Kaufman's next movie, very specifically, Terra Firmer. And then we see furthermore in Poultry Geist and other works he made after it, that it came with more of a call to arms action. I mean, and this movie kind of ends that climactic scene. Of, it's just, fuck it. And to me, like, there's kind of some humor in that to me, but so at the same point, I'm like, it feels empty yeah i mean but but i feel like those are those are real feelings and i think putting them in a piece of art um kind of de-weaponizes them in a way and i and i think that's what this movie does well i i think that's what spoke to a lot of people about it and like i've very much have found that people like i'm right on the cusp of gen x and millennial 
Um, like I'm amongst the yeah, we're both amongst like the oldest people that are considered millennials. And when I talk to Gen X people about trauma, this is the movie that always comes up with them is Tromeo yeah. and Juliet. And I think it's because this is like like kind of like the ultimate like Gen X movie. And yeah. and this came up around the time when in nineties cinema we were starting to see um uh shifts of independent um, films actually like entering into mainstream consciousness because we've had uh, Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, a uh, bunch of other people who I'm like not thinking of the names off the top of my head right now. And then Troma with having Tromeo and Juliet was kind of like, you know, if you're putting all those um, uh, filmmakers as kind of various songs on the mixtape, Tromeo and Juliet is like that crazy spastic like yes. song by people who can barely uh, play their instruments, but there's still a groove to it that's like, oh, this this shit's crazy but cool. Mm. And it's kind of a bit easier road into a lot of trauma sensibilities than I feel pretty much anything they did before or even after. Like, I feel like this is kind of like the movie that you could kind of show, you know, quote-unquote normie more so than any of other Kaufman's works to kind of get them to understand the Choma aesthetic, but it's also missing a lot of what I view as the Choma aesthetic. Like, like big thing when talking about messaging in this movie, this movie's kind of weird for a Kaufman movie in that I don't feel it has a political agenda anywhere in it. No, no. Which, because like we talked about Choma's war being a commentary on the glorification of the military and Reagan's interventions in Central and South America, Toxic Avenger deals with environmental issues, Class in Newcomb High deals very much with, like, schooling issues and how kids are treated at school. You know, uh, and then, like, after this, we have uh, Terra Firmer, which deals with um, uh, media conglomerates and portrayals of marginalized people in media. Poultry mm-hmm. Geist, which deals with our food supply. And, yeah. of course, like, I'm missing Sergeant Kabuki Mountain, NYPD, which I also kind of argue is missing a political agenda. And I think yeah. that's another reason why that movie also doesn't really speak to me. Uh, that's a little hint for the future from when we eventually talk about that one. Yeah. But I also feel like that makes this more digestible than a lot of Lloyd Kaufman stuff. That even though it's like, you know, it features like, you know, lesbian sex, we watch somebody actually get their nipples pierced on screen. We got the standard trauma gore. Got a penis um, monster. Yeah, well, the penis monster. Okay, I gotta give it up. Penis monster is my favorite moment of the movie. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> penis monster is incredible. Um, but none of those things are really coming with kind of like that real, that real counterculture wit. And I was saying about this movie's drenched in counterculture, but it still kind of uses all those characters to tell a kind of superficial story, I feel. Mm, interesting. And... And I wonder if that's why maybe it crossed over the way it did. I kind of feel like that's very much the reason this crossed over so much. And, yeah. like, also, uh, it's also a random side note. Like, this is also, like, the great movie. Like, if uh, if you're trying to get somebody into trauma and they happen to be either be or were, like, one of those weird drama nerds in school, this yeah. is the movie to show them. Like, this Definitely. is a, the drama nerds <laughs> trauma movie. Even more yeah. so than probably Campbell the Musical, if we're going to group in all of Chuma's stuff, that this is so heavily rooted in state the stage theater 
and also right. and also touches on all those like you know kinky aspects which we all know those drama kids were fucking kinky. They may have been Dude. viewed as the losers at the time, but those were kinky motherfuckers. Yeah, I was um I I was in the drama club for like the last half of of my senior year of high school. I was always too shy to join anything like that before. Um but yeah, those some weird kids, man. And and God bless them. They're great, you know. <laughs> they're 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 fun. They're fun. I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> But this is kind of like the movie. This is a movie for like the drama kids and the Gen X nihilists and the New York Times editor that kind of wants to be able to talk about trash art, but it's hard to. But this one has Shakespeare, so I can talk yeah. about it. This is a movie all for those people, and I'm not one of those people. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it's um, in a lot of ways like maybe the last like real Gen X movie, though? Oh, I, 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 I don't think so. I want to say I don't think so, but I don't yeah. really know a better argument. It was just kind of like on rewatching this, I was just really struck with like, this is so Gen X. Like, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen a movie, like, seen a movie that's, because I'm constantly watching new movies, I'm constantly watching old movies. But it's like, I haven't seen a movie that this strongly reeked of Gen X as this one did. Yeah. It's that's interesting that they said in that interview how they like purposely like, you know, wanted to be even louder with the um, I don't know. They're making 90s nostalgia before the 90s were over. Like that's which, that's that's compelling. Which, which, by the way, this the book that I've been using as a big source for a lot of these episodes written in the 90s says the same thing. So that yeah. isn't them backtracking like 20 years later and trying to justify it. Right. That seems to be what they did on purpose at the time was make it something just so drenched in the now of the moment that they were making it. Yeah. Uh, do you think they, they, there was a, I mean, a reason for that? Like, I mean, did they think that, did they see that like, you know, in um <laughs> 2021, we would be in this weird dystopian nostalgia time loop where we're just obsessed with nostalgia <laughs> i mean they probably did have in some semblance be, like because everything becomes nostalgic eventually and remember in right. the 90s that whole thing of kaufman doing a rant about repackaging in the 60s uh people whose either memories may be fried or weren't born yet may not remember that was the thing that's super popular in like pop mainstream culture was 60s nostalgia that yeah. was a huge fucking thing like the airway, like like stuff, like the media wasn't dominated by stuff we now consider cool from then. Like Fight Club was a commercial flop, and Forrest Gump won Best Picture. Like yeah, and Forrest, it doesn't get more baby boomer nostalgia bullshit than Forrest Gump. No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> and this seems very much to be kind of like uh, a, a direct reaction to like a movie like Forrest Gump, which I believe Forrest Gump was ninety four yeah, or 94. something like that. And so Show Me and Juliet very much feels like, you know, Forrest Gump was the people with all the money doing their homage to their youth. And Show Me and Juliet very much feels like a middle finger to something like yeah. that and being like, fuck you, this is now. This is our moment, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it, it's funny. I was, I was talking to um, uh, a friend about, you know, 90s movies, and we were saying that movies like The Crow and Interview with the Vampire were, like, the most 90s ever, but 
I kind of feel like this movie might have those movies beat. Man, I think of like '90s movies, so. But that's the thing is, like, I turned 16 in the year 2000, which I argue, like, I argue makes me like it doesn't get more millennial than turning 16 in 2000. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> my big '90s movies that really touchstone to me, the, everyone probably agree of like, well, that's not really what people mean when they talk about '90s movies. Is stuff like Fight Club and Seven, right. and um, like those are the two that immediately jumped to my mind. And in terms yeah. of music. Whereas other people are going to cite uh, Nirvana or um, or um, Sonic Youth or Pixies as really show. And yes, I know some of those bands started in the 80s. That's fine. They became popular in the 90s. You cannot yeah. debate that. But to me, <laughs> 90s music is still more like what I think of as cool 90s music was like the first couple of Nine Inch Nails albums. Yeah. First couple of Marilyn Manson albums, who has since become a very problematic character. <laughs> but yeah. ignoring that, but like those first couple albums, like that's what I think of. But that was all late 90s. And yeah. even some of those artists' best work carried over into the early 2000s. I agree. Yeah, no, it's... um, And, well, I guess, like, I mean, that's... I mean... But that uh, that's because I, I think that the stuff that you're you're mentioning is was like cutting edge for the 90s, whereas like, yeah, like whereas like Sonic Youth and Nirvana were more of the 90s, I guess. And, and, the, and those groups, which also, for the record, don't really speak to me. However, I do love the Pixies of kind of like that whole alternative rock scene of the early and mid 90s. Pixies is always my pick. Mm-hmm. Um but, like, they, those acts were all cutting edge at the time as well. And, like, Tromeo and Juliet very much was a cutting edge movie, especially in independent cinema. Yeah. And I think it's also one of those things of, like, so many other artists and creators imitate those works afterwards, where it's sometimes hard for the original to really still shine on with its uniqueness if everyone kind of cribbed from it. No, that's true. I mean, it's like you look at like found footage movies, right? Like, you know, if you try to show somebody like the McPherson tape or the Blair Witch, like, you know, these like early like found footage movies, they might it might not have the same impact now because I've heard from a lot of younger people. I saw the Blair Witch Project was actually filmed in loose about 20 minutes down the road from where I used to live in Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And so it was essentially like a local film, and I don't I don't know where this whole rewriting thing came from. I believe it's rewriting history that people think the Blair Witch Project was real when it came out because yeah. in my small ass fucking town, we all knew like the Blair Witch Project was not real that it was no, nobody, a movie. Yeah. I don't remember so, anybody thinking it was real I don't except remember. like really dumb people. <laughs> yeah, I know there's some people still think it's real. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember going to see Blair Witch Project uh, during its opening week. I didn't see it opening night, but I saw it during its opening week, and it scared the fucking shit out of me. It yeah. really terrified me seeing it in theaters when it first came out. And I'm pretty sure I had to sneak into that movie because I wasn't 18 yet. I used yeah. to sneak into a lot of R-rated movies when I was younger. Um, anyway, kids, listen, the, ticket, the key is you buy a ticket for the PG-13 movie, and you just walk into the R-rated movies theater. Yeah, it's nobody really checks, easy. Nobody knows. It's, it's really so easy. <laughs> I hope there's some under-17-year-old under that's hearing this that I've just opened up their world to have to sneak in the movies. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, Blair Witch Project scared the shit out of me. But I see things on, like, uh, you know, Reddit, social media, various places of people in the teens, early 20s now revisiting horror classics, of which Blair Witch Project is one. And overwhelmingly, they're like, I don't get it. Like, wow. what, what's, what freaked out people about this movie? Yeah. And it's like, you have to understand, there was nothing like this. Nothing. And, uh, and Yeah, like, at least not in the theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing in the theater. And being from a small Pennsylvania town... I had not yet seen um, the last broadcast. I had not seen the McPherson tapes. I had not seen uh, Man Bites Dog. I had not seen Campbell Holocaust yet. And like so, like Blair Witch Project was the first time seeing this type of shit anywhere, and it's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, and I mean the marketing for that movie was really good too. I mean I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but yeah, I like remember we're getting, just we're getting way too into the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, now. but I just remember, remember uh, and Juliet. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is this is the thing that I do on my other show is we like pick one thing to talk about and then we just talk about a bunch of other shit. Um, but uh, the marketing of it, I remember just seeing all the the spreads in the movie magazines I used to get, and I was like, what is this? This looks crazy, you know and yeah, it was just brilliant marketing. So, but actually, you know, that's time back in that, like, Blair Witch Project was another example of kind of, like, the the 90s was kind of like the first time of having this really pure independent cinema actually being able to get taken seriously in the mainstream. Yeah. yeah. And which Show Me and Julia and tying this back to Show Me and Julia was definitely part of that same movement. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, it was, yeah, it's, um, I could, I could see why you said it's a little more entry level though, you know, like, because I, I, I did show it to a lot of people who like, I wanted to get into trauma movies, you know, um, uh, yeah, like in, in high school, like I would just be like, we got, we got to watch this. It's, it's Shakespeare, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I will give a quick, like, I, I, I know I've said some negative things about the movie, but I'm like, it's negative. It doesn't speak to me, but I see why it speaks to a lot of other people. It does a really uh, good job at kind of translating the Shakespeare story to an absolutely insane, trashy, low-budget feature. And that's impressive. And I like how the movie switches in and out of modern-day dialogue and classic dialogue taken straight from the play. I think that's really clever. Mm -hmm. Um, which, like, uh, the Laz Berman, am I saying his last name right? Boz, it's Boz Lerman. You're switching Boz, that Yeah, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm messing it up. But <laughs> that guy, that guy's movie uh, is all just the original uh, text, but it's presented in such a way that a modern audience can understand. That right. was a clever take on the material. This does an equally clever take, but different, of mixing the original uh, dialogue with how people were currently talking in the... Uh, mid nineties. Definitely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the, uh, I liked how it was, you know, I, I liked how it was a mix instead of, and then, uh, you know, apparently, uh, and this might've just been them telling stories, but, uh, but, um, I, I think, uh, Lloyd really wanted it in iambic pentameter. And so, and James Gunn told him that it was, even though it is, it is not. (laughs) Okay. See, I, I, that was from the Vice interview from three years ago. They're claiming that then, but in the book I have from the 90s, uh-huh. Lloyd Kaufman talks about how his first draft was entirely written like that, 
all later drafts were not, were not. and that was okay. it was done on purpose going back and forth between uh, that style of speech and modern speech. So that's definitely a story they're making up now because Lloyd yeah. Kaufman was not saying that in the 90s. And both him and Gunn were talking in the 90s that the movie could not be constructed in that way. Cool. I'm glad so you have that, that book in front of you. <laughs> that's a little that's a little bit of rewriting of history in their in their joint interview they give together. Which there. which, you know, to be fair, we all do that. I mean, I think we uh, we all tend to uh, rewrite rewrite well, history. When being we forced to, to pick the when forced being Pick between the legend and the truth. Always print the legend. Like yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wonder if uh, I wonder if that figure cited uh, for what James Gunn was paid for the script was uh, accurate. I think he got paid a buck fifty. Which, according <laughs> I'm to, I'm sorry, the I mean one hundred fifty, not a dollar fifty. Yeah, I know. In the interview they did in 2017, James Gunn is claiming he got paid one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, here in the book written in the nineties, he has to say. Troma paid me $150 to do the screenplay. It was the most money I had ever gotten through legal means in a long time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> L- listen, we're both writers. We know that, uh, you know, it's hard out here for us. And, uh, yes. yeah, so, um, I yeah. think that $150 figure is accurate since that's, that's what's always been claimed. That's fun. That's fun. I did, um, there was... I, I did want to bring up the uh, I had like the IMDb trivia page and I wanted to see if we could like if there was an easy way for us to fact check it. Oh, uh, fun! Yeah, um, since you do have that book, I think that'd be a fun thing to do. Um, oh gosh. Okay, so. Yeah, so we, we uh, you know, as trauma fans, we know this is definitely true. The footage of the car flipping over is recycled for many trauma films, yes. uh, including Sergeant Kabukiman, Terra Firmer, and uh, Toxic Avenger 4. And I feel um, we should wait to talk about the car flipping until we get to the movie that it originated from. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that one. Um, uh, the scene where London Arbuckle dot, uh uh, so London Arbuckle is the uh, character that Juliet was uh, supposed to get married to. Um, uh, but there's a scene where he jumps out a window and the stuntman almost actually died because uh, he didn't know that the um, he didn't know that they had removed the glass from the window. And so he like jumped full force uh, in the book. That story is uh, recounted with a lot more details than the IMDb has. And that what they had first done was they had set up supposedly shatterable glass, but it was way too thick that the stunt um, the stunt coordinator had used. Yeah. And the actor himself had even questioned during the filming. I was like, I think that's too thick. I don't think I can go through that. And mm-hmm. in the first take, he ran full force, jumped and hit his head straight on, which also is kind of weird that he was jumping head first and not putting his arms up. Yeah. To, protect himself and apparently he just bounced off the window Jesus. plane and so then their idea was like okay we don't have the appropriate breakable glass so what we'll just do is we'll just put up venetian blinds which you can actually see in the scene yes. <laughs> that of him running up to it it's glass but when he goes through it it's venetian blinds mm-hmm. however the actor involved claims nobody told him that and he thought there was glass there in front and behind the venetian blinds so he still ran through it with force and 
I don't understand the logistics of this. It's explained in the book, but I still don't understand the logistics that they were up four stories doing this stunt. And Ouch. the idea was they were supposed he was supposed to be landing on a balcony that was right outside the window that was fully prepped with stuff to safely land on. But because he went too far, he was like, I don't really understand this. He was about to overshoot the end of the balcony, which was sent him down two additional stories head first, which mm. I don't understand the idea of doing a stunt of jumping out a window onto a balcony beneath you. But yeah. you don't show that like, like that just seems unsafe to me. Like, why not just do it on ground level? And like, yeah, yeah, I, I, sounds, I don't. Yeah. And apparently when he fell out, what prevented him from overshooting it was the set photographer was out on the balcony taking promo sh- what was intended to be promo shots of him coming out uh, of the of the window and he collided with the person and that's what prevented him from going over the balcony and most likely killing himself because he would have fallen three stories head first man um oh and also it was the day when that happened um that oh uh, I've got to I've got to pull this up here real quick. That happened to be the day that a local TV news crew was there to um, do a little (laughs) puff promo piece on trauma filming their new movie. And instead, they got to watch everyone on the cast and crew freak the fuck out. Everyone was angry with each other. It was a whole shit show. And this TV crew was there to watch it all. And. And it's like, of course, of course, when things go wrong, that's when somebody else is there to watch it happen. I wonder if there's uh, if there's footage of that report somewhere, if they did a report. I, I tried doing a uh, YouTube search on like Tromeo and Juliet to see if there was any interesting things out there, you know, n- ignoring people doing um, modern day reviews, which we fall into that. But if, if yeah. there was anything interesting from the time about it, and I couldn't find anything. And considering this is probably a local... Uh, New York news station, that footage is probably lost the time, I imagine. Yeah, I would say so. Um, all right, here's an interesting one. So, uh, actually, there's two two of them for uh, uh, relate to Debbie Rashan. Um, for many years after the uh, film was released, moviegoers thought that all the tattoos and piercings on Debbie Rashan were real. Uh, they were fake, except for one. She pierced her belly button before the start of the film so she could see what it was like to have it done for character work. Uh, During the romantic scenes between her and Jane Jensen, the mouth piercings kept falling off, which demanded more takes. Um, There's no mention of that in the the book, um, but that sounds real enough. That sounds real, yeah. Yeah, that sounds real. Um, Okay, Uh, she plays... uh, Jane, she plays Jane Jensen, who plays Juliet. Uh, so, so Debbie Rashan plays her nanny, despite being a year younger than her in real life. Yeah, I mean that happens all the time in movies. Yeah. Um, okay. Though, if we're going to talk about Jane Jensen, do you have does IMDb IMDb include the story about the maggots? Uh, no, no, it does not. This is the most interesting behind-the-scenes story that's related in the book. So, when Juliet has that, uh, I normally hate dream sequences in movies, but I actually love the dream sequences in this movie. I think they're really cool. And she has that weird, like, pregnancy fear dream. Yes. Which, 
and uh, her belly swells up, and Rome, uh, Tromeo, I'm sorry, Tromeo gets all <laughs> excited, and he starts tearing it open, and it's popcorn, and he starts eating it, and then yeah. rats start coming out, <laughs> and then uh, what what is like supposed to be like these larvae bugs also they're start mealworms. Mealworms, yes, that's what they actually are. They're mealworms. Now, this is great behind the scenes story that when they were shooting it, Kaufman did not think the popcorn transitioning to the rats was enough. And the reason why was apparently the rats were too cute and that everyone <laughs> on the set was having too much fun playing with the stunt rats. And so he's like, if nobody on set even finds these rats gross, nobody watching the movie is going to find the rats gross. So we need to add something else. And his idea was to add like some gross bugs. And he kept referring to them as maggots on set, even though they were mealworms. And he himself, Kaufman himself claims that like he didn't really see the big deal in like getting the terms wrong. And the actress, uh, what's, what's the last, um, uh, Jane... Jensen. Jensen. Jane Jensen. Uh, she kept like asking for clarification of like, wait, what are you putting under there? Like, why? What? Why are you doing this? And and she says, um, quote, really, aren't rats enough? Can't we just leave that at that? Which Lloyd Kaufman responds with, quote, sure, if you want to ruin the whole movie. <laughs> and so then she agreed to do it. And then during the, um, so she's kind of strapped into place in this bed, and that's how they're like. The special effects are being able to funnel things into this opening that's a fake stomach to have the stuff come out of her. She starts freaking out. She starts screaming. She starts no. crying. And everyone on, on, on set at first thought it was just her acting. And people are like, wow, she's doing a really good job. And then she starts screaming, please stop, cut, cut, please stop. And that's when everyone immediately knows, like, this isn't acting. And so they cut her out of the thing, and she's visibly shaken, and she just left set. And Lloyd Kaufman doesn't know where she went. She went somewhere for an hour and a half. And when she came back, explained that, you know how some people have, like, irrational phobias? Hers was maggots. Oof. And because Lloyd Kaufman kept using the wrong term, maggots, and apparently something went wrong with the internal uh, fake stomach, and so the stuff that was coming out of it was actually getting underneath the prosthetics and actually touching her physical body. And so she could feel all oh. the mealworms worming around on her bare stomach, which she thought were actual maggots. And she had a freak out on set. Um, the scenes that are actually used in the movie of her screaming and crying are the actual scenes of her begging for them to cut production. Man, that sounds about right. Um, now, admittedly, once it was all clarified what happened, she held no uh, ill will, and the rest of the shot, shoots continued with no problems from her. But, see, for anyone listening, there's the importance of words. If, if Lloyd Kaufman just would have been specific and told her mealworms, she actually would have gotten through the shot no problem. But yeah. because he kept calling them the wrong thing, maggots, she had yeah. maggots in her brain. Despite uh, no, no, your science, no, your science, guys. <laughs> um, oh, I, my, she, she also took a bite of real meat in the movie after eight years being a vegetarian. 
though that scene is actually cut from the final version of the movie. So oh, she no broke shit. her veget- vegetarianism of not of I'm sorry of eight years for this movie, and that scene did not make it into the movie. Oh man, that's crazy. So like her character is vegetarian, you know, judging yes. by some of the things she said. I didn't I didn't know that the actress was as well. Yes. God and, damn. Lloyd, and Lloyd Kaufman himself is also a vegetarian and he was a vegetarian while this movie was filmed. He went vegetarian, I believe sometime in either the late eighties or early nineties is when he yeah. actually went full veggie. Okay, cool. Yeah, I could see that because he's yeah, I mean that's like that's a big part of, of you know, that kind of which we'll talk about that more when we get to poultry guys, but that was a little detailed. I thought was super interesting. Let's talk about that guy, um, her suitor now. Who yeah, London Arbuckle. Yeah, London Arbuckle, who he's a butcher, and and Julia is a vegetarian, and that's kind of like the conflict between the two of them of why Romeo is better for her because like they just have completely. Tr- I'm sorry, I keep saying Romeo. Tromeo is better, yeah, yeah, yeah. better for because they have such completely different life philosophies. And I had actually, that was one of the little details. I want to say I forgot about because I totally remembered the the whole thing of the, the giant bug being brought out and then put into the, yeah. to be made hot dogs out of. Oh, I yeah. Totally remembered, yeah, yeah. I totally remembered that little joke, but it's like, oh, that was something now that Lloyd Kaufman would eventually, essentially make an entire movie out of late, later. That the right. whole conflict between vegetarianism and um, eating meat and also how our food is produced and how meat in particular is produced. That's, mm-hmm. There's some little hints at it in Chomeo and Juliet. Not enough that I'd say it actually makes it a political subtext to the movie. Right. It's really just more of a character conflict than anything else. But that Kaufman would later end up making an entire movie about the concept of that conflict. I love the scene where he's like... Uh, where London is like really upset because you know uh, Juliet's turned him down, and he's just like putting his face inside the gutted pig. Oh and god! Like... And I'm pretty sure that's a real gutted pig because I like think so too. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's real. And yeah, he's grabbing it like, oh man, that actor went. That actor he really went all out. All. Yeah, he went all out. In that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God, that thing. And he tries to get her to eat that uh, raisin loaf or whatever. Oh yeah, which which is a real thing and is fucking gross. Is it really? Jesus Christ. I uh, I mean, I know olive loaf is a thing, which also raisin is loaf is also a thing. It's fucking gross. Ugh, yeah. God damn. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I am a meat eater, but that stuff's gross. Yeah. No, I get that. I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even when I was a meat eater, I was afraid of things like that. I was like, that looks gross. <laughs> um, so oh, I do we have any more do we have any more interesting trivia? So uh, no, but I I didn't notice this before um until this uh, and it's crazy. I've seen this movie so many times, but I never noticed how insane the credits are, the closing credits. Um. Oh yes. Um. Now I'll I'll admit I uh I didn't notice them until I looked them up on IMDb. I did a, for some reason I looked at the full casting credits on IMDb and the full casting credits has some really interesting notes in it. I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah. So um. 
so there's actually a whole section that's just crazy credits and it's got like 26 entries but like it begins with um hi i'm the credit guy you know sensitive guy who makes up the end credits on all these films it gets pretty lonely around here you know dedicating my sphere to a vastly underappreciated art form so i thought i'd slip in this a little personal ad i'm sure the producers won't mind if any women are interested in water sports please call me at (laughs) one 800 838-7662. Run out into the lobby and make the call now. Oh yeah, and I love big hooters. (laughs) See, that's that that, that's some that's a great joke there. I I gotta give credit. That is a really that's a fantastic joke. It I mean it goes on. Like there's uh, there's like uh yeah, there's um he pops in again, um, and then there's uh Additionally, still a pornographer, uh, James Gunn. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Set Carpenter, uh, Peter Anzalone, Karen Carpenter, not in this movie. Um, <laughs> people who did not act in this film, Sandra Bullock, John Travolta, Ger- Gerard Depardieu, Depardo, Depardo, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gabe Kaplan, and Daniel Day-Lewis as Gringo Ted. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, unit manager, Andrew Weiner, manager of his unit, no one in this crew. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not going to read all of them, but there's, there's like 26 insane, um, oh yeah, and then the, the piracy warning where it's like any unauthorized blah, blah, blah. Uh, may result in a criminal prosecution as well as civil liability. In addition, we'll tell your mom. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, um, since, since we're at the credits, uh, I also want to talk about the end of the movie. Because um, yeah. I actually uh, I actually do really like how the movie ends. I think its ending is the highlight of the movie, in yeah. which to do a twist on having both uh, Tromeo and Juliet die, the twist is they find out that they're brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And that the reason that everyone's been trying to keep them apart the entire movie is because they're getting sucked into an incestuous relationship. Yeah. Which, I actually thought that that was a really cool twist. I thought Definitely. that was a really neat twist on ending the Shakespeare story. And it's very much in Troma's wheelhouse. And with them ending yeah. on saying fuck it, and going off driving together. Um, I, 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 like I said, it's just kind of like the Gen X nihilism, but I'm like, okay, that's clever. That's, they that's also have little, original. Uh, yeah, the little, the two yeah. little mutant children. The, the, well, there's the epilogue. And yeah. Now, I want to, um, this actually all originates from James Gunn's original second draft of the script, which okay. had apparently three different endings, because Gunn didn't know how he wanted to end the movie, and so he had pitched three different endings. And here's how it's written in the book to describe them. Uh, Gunn had actually written three endings. One we used, which had Tromeo and Juliet having a backyard barbecue with the deformed inbred children. A second one, which had them driving away into the sunset, smiling while happy music played, whereupon they're hit by a truck and killed. I think it's actually (laughs) pretty great. And finally... Tromeo and Juliet committing suicide after finding out they couldn't make it without Juliet, Juliet's father's money. This last one was transmuted into a dream from which Juliet would wake up into the happy ending. And apparently, 
it was that the suicide ending was actually yeah. the uh, ending they originally did with test screening audiences, and oh. test screening audiences found it too dark and depressing, and they didn't like how people were leaving the movie feeling down because the rest of the movie is all kind of like, uh, you know, it has a the trauma happy don't give a fuck attitude yeah. through it all, and then that dream what ends how the movie presents it in the end of it being a dream sequence is actually really dark and jarring and out of yeah. character of the whole rest of the movie. That was the original ending they shot. So wow. that was how it was originally meant to end. And so then when they saw the test audiences kind of hated it, they decided to have it be like, Oh, it was all just a dream. And then they um, yeah. made the happy ending that we get with having the inbred the children. Suic- now the suicide ending is, it's like a, was it an extra on the DVD? I believe. Okay, see, I want this is interesting. There's uh, two different, there's two or three different cuts of Tromeo and Juliet. So I'm not sure which cut you watched in preparation for the film. Yeah. I watched the kind of like the the uh, what's called the unrated director's cut, and there's a director's cut, and then there's an unrated director's cut. The unrated director's cut, which I watched has the suicide ending in it yeah. and then Juliet wakes up and it then goes into the happy ending. Um, yeah. I remember though, I believe they had the original DVD, the, uh, the suicide ending was just a special feature and wasn't yeah. actually incorporated into the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the version I watched, um, yeah, did not have it incorporated into the movie, but I remember seeing the suicide ending cause she like, takes a shotgun to her face doesn't bo- she bo- like bo- both uh both uh tromeo and juliet uh kill themselves via uh shotgun they do uh yeah. they do home dental surgery with a shotgun to... Jeez, yeah yeah and that no. was how the movie was originally supposed to end yeah it definitely doesn't fit um but i yeah. could I, I could see that being a leftover from uh i mean because yeah we've kind of danced around it but like yeah that james gunn's initial script was just way darker that that's apparently like in terms of how dark it was. Now I'd be super curious, and I've tried looking it up. I can't find anything about it. I am just really curious about what all the darkness was that upset Lloyd Kaufman of all people. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I I can't find anywhere detailing except like little things that I've already brought up in our recording here. In fact, I believe I've already brought up every detail which is at least outlined in the book I have, which is in fact the only place I can find that has any details of what James, James Gunn's original script was like. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> they managed to fit that, uh, the priest joke in there. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so what's crazy about that is. Do you ever work was... for children? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like that was before like all the scandals in the Catholic church, which, well, this was also around the same time period, which it was at Sinand O'Connor, I believe is the name of the singer, who got I banned. I think it's pronounced Shanae. Shanae O'Connor. Okay, I'm sorry, I apologize. This is a artist that I just don't really know much about, except for the fact they performed on Saturday Night Live, tearing up a picture of the Pope in protest of the Catholic Church covering up child sex abuse, and they were permanently essentially banned from all mainstream television for the rest of their life. Um and uh, this was around the same time period that, oh, shit. that people were aware of what the Catholic yeah. Church was 
doing. It just was not being covered in mainstream media at all. And the Catholic not, Church yeah. was still doing an amazing job at covering it up and being the largest pedophilia organization in the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because it didn't start getting, like, you know, I guess covered in the mainstream media until, like, 2002 or something like it was, that. It was the early 2000s that yeah. it actually started breaking about what the Catholic... We started breaking in mainstream media about what the Catholic Church was doing, and yeah. this movie t- totally has that has a joke about it, in it where you have the Catholic priests and the cops are like at the end of the movie, I'm like, "Oh, you did a good job. You ever consider being a police officer? Do you get to work with kids?" Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like, oh man, that su- that though did surprise me because like no. Well, movies that, were making jokes about it at that time. And there's the other joke earlier in the movie where he's like, the reason he agrees to help Tromeo and Juliet was he's like, I too know what it's like to care about somebody. And then there's that flashback of him and the kid like dancing. And Oh, and... God, yes. <laughs> yes. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Um, it's a shame there's not I it would be cool to have more additional details of like that initial script, you know, find out just how dark it was. What was too dark for Lloyd Kaufman, you know? I wouldn't know that so badly. And like we, we get little glimpses of it, such as like the drug addict suicide scene. So I'm like yeah. that movie went dark. Though like I said very earlier when we were recording, I love that idea of Juliet being a stripper and doing the balcony scene in a strip club during a private sex show that yes. that seems like that seems ridiculously clever and i gotta be honest i think it's better than that sounds conceptually better than the balcony scene we got in the final movie yeah it's i mean it's certainly memorable um yeah like just uh and it feel and, and it would have felt even more uh i don't know trauma-esque i guess it kind of does yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it does yeah man um, so you wanted to, uh, talk a little bit about James Gunn. Yes. I feel like this is kind of like the, uh, perfect place to, and yeah. I just want to see here real quick. I believe we covered everything that I really wanted to like specifically talk about in terms of the on screen, the movie and the production of the movie, though. I'm sure we're going to be coming back to all those with the James Gunn. Like, this is everyone that's listening to this knows who James Gunn is now. Nobody yeah. knew who James Gunn was when he worked on this movie. This was just as uh, Lake Kaufman gave Matt Stone and Trey Parker their first opportunity for no real reason. He just thought, like, all right, let's see if these guys can make it. He did the exact same thing with James Gunn, who yeah. later would go on to do. Um, he would later go on to write and direct Slither and Super, which are incredible films. He mm-hmm. wrote the screenplays of the uh, of Dawn of the Dead yep. and the uh, Scooby-Doo movies, which, fun fact, the Scooby-Doo movie was originally intended to be an R-rated adult comedy. I did not know that. That was the script that James Gunn wrote, and it got reworked into being a live-action children's thing. And in fact, some of it was even shot as an R-rated adult comedy until they change direction midway through production, which is why Velma and Daphne have an odd amount of cleavage in the movie for what's supposed to be a children's film. It was uh, originally supposed to be a sex com- a, a sex stoner comedy. That's what James Gunn wrote. <laughs> and then somehow 
against all fucking odds, he gets hired by Marvel to do Guardians of the Galaxy. And is now one of the most successful directors out writer directors out there currently working. And in case anyone listening to this is unaware and don't know how you could be, there was a whole controversy about James Gunn being temporarily fired from Disney Pictures due to very offensive jokes he made about um, specifically pedophilia on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Now, do you know who he was making those jokes back and forth with? I I do because you told me on the introductory episode, but it was uh, yeah, it was it was Lloyd Kaufman. It was Lloyd Kaufman. It was it was jokes specifically from his trauma era that got him in trouble. And yeah. for those that don't know, like he had actually already publicly deleted those tweets. He actually already did a public apology about two or three years beforehand. The really? reason I didn't reason, know that. Yes, yes, he had actually deleted them. He had made a public apology, essentially being like. I was at a different part of my life when I made those jokes. Now I'm in a different part. Um, and those two parts don't really, like, go together. I mean, he's still very close with Trauma, still very close with Lloyd Kaufman. But he doesn't present himself to the world in the same way as I, he used to. Right. And uh, he's like, so I present myself differently. I do different things, blah, blah, blah. And I recognize that what I said is kind of, like, inappropriate for where I am now. You know, mm-hmm. fine, whatever. What had happened was... Roseanne had just recently been fired from her own self-named TV show, Roseanne, when they tried yeah. doing that revival, and now it's turned into the Connors. I don't know. Yeah. I've never actually seen an episode of Roseanne in my entire life, nor do I have any interest to. But she has been <laughs> fired for making um, uh, some rather uh, racist statements on Twitter about, I don't even know who she was talking about. Like I said, I don't I really follow her. Yeah. I don't follow Rosanna at all. I don't know. I only know all the details of this because of how they directly related to James Gunn. Mm-hmm. James Gunn had been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump in, very publicly. And Mike Cernovich, who is a right-wing grifter associated with InfoWars, um, um, was aware of these old tweets from James Gunn. So even though they were already deleted, he had already apologized for it. He then was the one that directly compiled them and then sent them out to all right-wing media and was like, hey, look, Disney will fire, because Disney owned ABC at this time, Yeah, Disney will fire Roseanne for being racist, but they keep James Gunn on when he's promoting pedophilia, which is what they said. It was not in context that these were jokes while he worked for the most offensive film studio in the world. It was yeah. in that he was promoting pedophilia, and, Dis- and Disney fired him for it, which caused a whole shitstorm of outrage. All the Guardians of the Galaxy cast was publicly stating that they refused to go back to work on any Guardians of the Galaxy movie if Disney did not rehire James Gunn. Um, wow. and filmmakers from all over the spectrum of independent to gigantic names were backing James Gunn. Because James Gunn has a great reputation in the industry. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you can say those jokes are distasteful, but you know what he's never actually done was harm anybody. Yeah. And somebody may say of, like, oh, well, who did Roseanne harm? I'm be like, I don't know Roseanne that well. Uh, I can't defend or damn her. Talk to somebody that knows Roseanne. But yeah. I don't really give a shit. <laughs> Talk I to somebody know, who gives a shit about Roseanne. <laughs> but I do give a shit and know about James Gunn. And James Gunn did nothing wrong. Yeah. And... 
he ended up getting fired from DC. I'm sorry, he ended up getting fired from Marvel and then hired by DC to do a revamp of the Suicide Squad, which is coming out in a few months, and it's going to be a hard R version of Suicide Squad, which I'm really hoping that James Gunn's going back to his offensive, gory past, because I think that's exactly what it's going to be. And then Disney rehired him, that he's going to be involved, he's going to be writing and directing Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which James Gunn fucking won on that, like... Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it goes to show, like, you know, like, maybe, uh... I don't know. Maybe getting canceled is just an occult ritual you have to go through, and then you reemerge like the phoenix. <laughs> oh my god! Him getting canceled was, honest to God, like one of the best things that ever happened to his career because people just rallied around him. He got. He's now like the only. He's the only person to directly be involved with the MCU and the DCU in their yeah. current iterations, and doing both high-profile features with them. Like, I'm so thrilled. And, like, I've been following James Gunn's career from the very beginning. Like, I remember when his first movie that he made on his own, Slither, came out. And yeah, I, I saw that in Slither the right away. So, yeah. I loved it. Was, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I loved it, too. I was, I was excited just because, like, I was excited because I loved Tromeo and Juliet. I, I, you know, I was, like, I, you know, when I saw... I remember when the Dawn of the Dead remake came out and 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 Slither came out. I was like, "This is the guy who did that that fucking trauma movie that I love," you know. And so, um, yeah, it was it was just exciting to see somebody like come up that way. And um, my personal favorite movie by him, um, and I still think it's his best movie, is Super. Yeah. Okay. So have you have you seen Super? I I have not. I have not. It kind of got lost in the shuffle of oh my god movies for me. <laughs> You've got to see it. So it came out. What really hurt it was it came out around the same time as Kick Ass, and which is also a movie I really love. But yeah. they have very similar premises to them, but they go in very different directions. Mm. In that both the idea of like, uh, what if people in the real world tried being superheroes? And Kick-Ass takes it in a, even though it tries to be grounded in real life, it's really not. It's, it's very over the top in its violence and, its, uh, and, and how its characters are actually able to, the, every character is a martial arts master. And wow. they all happen to be martial arts masters in Kick-Ass. Super, though, we have a guy, um, play, we have this character played by Rain Wilson, um, who most people know as Dwight from The Office. Mm-hmm. who just, he's this lonely, fed-up guy with how the world is and just how the world is shitty to him. So he decides that he's just going to be, and he's a super comic book nerd, and he's going to become a superhero and clean up the world. But this involves things of him, like, taking tyrant irons to people who cut in lines. <laughs> and he just goes too over the top in what, right, he's, right. In what he's targeting. And the movie really focuses heavily on the idea of, like, if someone tried to become a superhero, what? how would that damage and destroy their lives? And the end of the movie, I'm not going to spoil it because you haven't seen it. <laughs> You'll, everyone listening, if you haven't seen Super, you're lucky or else I'd be talking about the end of it. But it has one of the most shocking, downbeat, depressing endings I've ever seen in a movie. No I shit. cannot recommend it enough. That where it all goes, it's... The last third of that movie, it's kind of like this quirky 
kind of dark comedy for the first two thirds, and then everything he's doing, all the ramifications of it, come back, and it all just goes deathly, deathly serious, and it is Damn. fucking dark. Which super is really what makes me wonder about like, what what was in that other version of uh, Romeo and Juliet he watched, and yeah, also like. Yeah. Like, James Gunn, a lot of people seem to think him from his work, he's kind of like a happy-go-lucky guy. But really, if you read interviews with him or ever look at his social media stuff, he's kind of serious, dour, depressing kind of person. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the impression I got, too. Um, yeah, because even, even in, I think even in the interview with Lloyd, you know, that, that they did with Vice, um, there were moments where he just kind of seems, yeah, kind of, I don't know. He, 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 he focuses a lot on the negatives in, in life. And yeah. I, I find that, like, really interesting because of, like, now he's working with Marvel. And um, I, I went with a uh, very close, very old friend of mine to go see um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy on opening night. And I, even though I'm a huge comic book nerd, uh, most of us comic book nerds did not know who Guardians of the Galaxy were before that movie. And yeah. I thought that was such a weird choice for Marvel. And then when they announced James Gunn is doing it, I'm like, fucking James Gunn is doing this? So <laughs> I have to see what this is going to be. Yeah. And have you seen Greens of the Galaxy? Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I have. I am not going to lie. Seeing that movie uh, opening night when Rocket does his whole rant about like how he, essentially he shouldn't exist and he doesn't know why he exists when he's <laughs> at the bar. Like that brought tears to my eyes. And like, dude, like, I, uh, yeah, I, um, I, one of, one of, one of the few tweets I've done that ever got any like real traction was like, uh, was I, 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 um, I posted a quote from John Milton's paradise lost where it's like, uh, where Adam's like, did I request you to mold me from clay maker? And like, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm butchering it, but like, uh, it was basically like, you know, Adam yelling at God for making him. And then like, I, I, like the next quote was, I made a quote from rocket raccoon going, yeah, well, I didn't ask to get made, you know? Yes. And it was like, oh shit. Like this movie is actually incorporating some of that James Gunn fucked upness darkness now admittedly it's sanitized in such a way that's acceptable for wide audiences and a disney corporation but a little bit of that and that some of that twisted humor is still kind of rocket kept um keeping the request people's body parts yes, and like yes. just because that'd be funny that's james gunn's sense of humor right there yeah no it is and and i think because it's because he still made a james gunn movie even within that you know, Marvel Disney oh, construct. Uh, it's probably the best of those movies that they did. You know, um, I mean, I know, I know other people prefer Infinity War and stuff like that, but I don't know. Uh, Guardians is really I'm, good. I'm a big, uh, you know, I love the low level trash as trauma, but I still love my big budgeted Hollywood movies as well. And I'm a superhero nerd. Um, we both are. Yeah. I love the MCU movies. But James Gunn's Guardian movies, uh, they're pro they're probably the best of them all. Like, yeah. I really loved Infinity War and Endgame, but that was because they had 27 movies or however many it was to build up to that. And like, yeah. if I'm going to tell somebody, if somebody's like, I've never seen an MCU movie before. If if I'm just going to watch one, what would I watch? My answer easily would be Guardians of the Galaxy. 
Right. Yeah, because it's you don't need to see any of the others to to enjoy it. And it's weird. It's fun. It's sad. It's yeah. It's it's just so it's just so great. And like if you look at James Gunn's career from uh, Romeo and Juliet, and you also um, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he also co-write uh, Citizen Toxie? He had something to do with it. I was actually looking at the. Uh... The credits for that. No, the writer for Citizen Toxie is Trent Haga or Haga, who oh, did. Oh, Trent um, Haga. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's what I'm gonna, who's somebody else who I'm going to rant and rave about in the future because I love Trent Haga. Yeah, I love him as well. Um, I, it was um. But he's yeah, in. He's in Citizen Toxie. I that's, know that. That's like, what. I, he, he, um, that's what I'm thinking of. I was like, I yeah. thought he had something to do with it. I, but he's on. He's an on-screen. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel that. Uh, yes, you're correct. Oh, he wrote Terra Firmer. That's what it is. That's he right. wrote Terra Firmer, and which I adore. And so I think I, I feel like if you go from Tromeo and Juliet to Terra Firmer to Slither to Super to Guardians of the Galaxy, it kind of all makes sense. He's, like, you know, he's like, uh, yeah, he's, um, I don't know. I guess he's, uh, Part of the, uh, the I don't know, the trinity of, like, those sort of uh, low-budget splatter darlings like Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And he and he made it big. And I'm yeah. so, I'm so amazed that that happened. And, like, I, you know, unlike other, like, in case somebody somehow listening to this is not aware, like I am also a creative person. I, I've written books. I've overseen lots of projects. I do performance art and events. And like, I don't get jealous when I see like people get that I've been following their whole careers get big. I'm like, yes, one of us fucking made it. Because yeah. every time one of us fucking makes it, it increases the odds that other of us are going to make it. Definitely. I mean, because I mean, a lot of a lot of guys who. Or guys and gals who um who you know kind of uh reach that level they usually will talk about the people they came up with or people who inspired them and shit and so i think like that can um yeah that definitely leads to it to that you know it, or definitely can you know lead to um more people uh discovering the scene <laughs> So, uh, do you have anything else you want to say about James Gunn? Um, there's actually two more things, though, that go back to Romeo and Juliet that we have to talk about. No, I think I think I'm good. I mean, I'm kind of with you on it. I mean, I've always really liked the guy, uh, the guy's work, even though I I missed Super for whatever reason. Um, and... You have to unfuck that. Go All watch. Right. Super. I will. I will make it a point <laughs> to do that. Um, and but yeah, no, it's it's just cool seeing him like get to where he is despite being kind of i don't know i guess one of us in a way he's a he's a weird fucking guy yeah so in the shift i know you wanted to talk about and we've kind of briefly touched on it throughout here talk about the soundtrack to tromeo and juliet yeah so um do you do you have the track list um i have the track list pulled up right in front of me which yeah. includes and, and this is like where i'm like this probably is the trauma movie, the backtrack to an earlier point I made, where trauma is actually becoming really a icon of counterculture, underground culture. Because yeah. like the earlier movies, the kind of featured 
you know, like in-house bands or no-name bands. This soundtrack featured Motorhead, The Meat Men, Wesley Willis, Super Chunk, Ass Ponies, Supernova, Sublime, um, Unsane. These are kind of like all really heavy hitters of yeah. the 90s. And I had mentioned to you that there was a little trivia thing I had for it, which was there were three songs featured by the band The Icons, which is Jane's Gunn's early punk alternative rock bands. Oh, that's funny. That's so funny. It has three songs featured in the movie. But, uh, like, like that's kind of, like, fucking cool. This was, and these were all yeah. artists that they they all gave their movie and its, uh, their music and its detail in the book for essentially uh, no money. And wow. on, according to Wikipedia, the Ass Ponies lead singer requested only a chunk of the Ass Ponies lead singer requested only a check from the company for nine ninety five for the purpose of framing it on his wall. <laughs> That's right. I did see that on Wiki today. And yeah. That the artists, funny. pretty much all the artists, gave their music for essentially free because they were all fans of Troma. And this is something that we see now going on, continuing on from Tromeo and Juliet, in that this movie was kind of a weird segue into where trauma starts what they turn into of lots of people in underground and alternative media giving yeah. their giving their efforts for free or basically no cost to help support trauma because they all grew up on trauma yeah no it's it, it really does feel like a big turning point you know i mean uh to your point about saying that um it uh that it it had like kind of a nihilism to it um and i you know of like you know like at the end where they're kind of just like fuck it i i kind of wonder if that was you know um necessary in a way like it was their way of saying goodbye to their their previous era and kind of ushering in the new era with like stuff like terra firmer um i'd actually say I personally argue when we get to Terra Firmer, I personally argue that Terra Firmer was that movie of no, saying goodbye I, to the previous era and ushering oh, okay. in the in the new one. This to me though, with that nihilism, is they had just gone through years and years of failure, and yeah. so I think that fuck it is kind of more summing up how they felt at the time of like we've tried so hard, we failed so much for so long, trying to just, be like them. Let's just be us. Yeah, and that yeah. fuck it is that. Yeah, that's that's what I personally feel is kind of like the meta, <laughs> the meta cool. thing. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean that's 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 pretty much all I have, unless you have anything. I have one very last thing. Okay, one very yeah, let's last hear thing. it. Um, Phil Basso who I am pulling up his, I should have pulled this up earlier. Um, okay, he's only done this one thing. There is apparently, um, he worked with Will Keenan, who is the guy who plays Tromeo from the movie. And due out later this year is a short comedy film called Tromeo Found 25 Years Later. Oh. And it's a sequel short film to Tromeo and Juliet about where Tromeo ended up 25 years later. I'm interested to see this. I have come across absolutely nothing about this until researching for this episode. And that kind of 
blew my mind. And Will uh, Keegan, who plays Tromeo in Tromeo and Juliet, is repraising his role as as an adult uh, adult Tromeo. That's that's amazing. Um, you know what? I, we do got to give a shout out to uh, Joe Joe Flyshaker uh, playing the one uh, nine hundred hunk. And um... oh, <laughs> <laughs> we we should give a shout out every for every movie that Joe Flyshaker appears in. And yes, he plays a one nine hundred hunk in the movie. That's great. Yeah. And, yeah. And I do believe, since we're kind of like winding down, we we talked off uh, off recording before that you have a personal history over one of the DVD special features. Do you not? Oh yeah. So um, <laughs> there's <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so one of the DVD special features is uh, is yeah. They I mean they just have like 15 minutes of of a girl masturbating, and they encourage you to masturbate with her. So yeah, you know, I used that quite a bit in high in high school. <laughs> and you know, I did not have that DVD when I was high school. I did not get it till I was in uh, college, and things were different in my life. But that could have been very useful at the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it was, it's funny because like I mean, even Lloyd does the intro to it, and it's like very. Like... Oh my! Oh my God! So yeah, Lloyd Kaufman like so. So you're going to have a jerk-off session, and here's Lloyd Kaufman to give you an introduction to your jerk-off yeah. session. That's exactly what everybody wants. <laughs> what everybody wants, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good call. Um, I completely, uh, completely so many, forgot to talk about that. <laughs> so many young men and women probably had some awakenings during many trauma Lloyd Kaufman-made movies. I am yeah, sure. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think... Um, uh, you know, I think uh, the first Toxic Avenger was was the first time I saw uh, tan lines on boobs. Oh, I think that's true for me as well. I yeah. think that's true for me as well. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen that before, that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and they would just let us rent that as as children. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Oh, it's got a cute superhero in it. <laughs> Yeah, there's so, a cartoon, so the, clearly the movies oh, are fine. It's fine, it's fine. <laughs> so, moving on then, what should we talk about next week? Yeah, so, um... Mm. Yeah, actually, before we get to this, I like having this um, thing that we've been doing at the end of every episode, I'm going to continue it. So, would you recommend this movie to somebody? Yes, I, I, I absolutely would, um, because, yeah, it's, uh, if you've ever been, uh, if you've ever been in love and a weirdo, um, you'll probably find a lot to love in this movie. And then for myself, what I would say, I would recommend this movie that if you are already a Lee Kaufman, a trauma fan, and you're trying to get your significant other into trauma, and they happen to either be or were a drama nerd, this is the movie to show that. <laughs> That's how I would recommend it. That's the, yeah, that's a good caveat. <laughs> awesome. So next week, man, um, I don't know. So do we want to kind of stick with this pattern where we're doing a Kaufman and then a distributed one? Or I, I don't know. We'll probably run out of Kaufman ones before we. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think we should mix in some other ones because I have a good pitch for what we should do for next week. Yeah, let's hear it. I think next week we should do the 1979 Charlie Kaufman classic Mother's Day. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I think we should is we were both Shudder fans, both subscribed to Shudder, 
And Joe Bob just did it with Eli Roth providing um, backup uh, commentary on the Oh, news. fun. So fun. I think here we, I think we should watch. I've been waiting to watch this Joe Bob and Eli Roth talk about Mother's Day. And the fact it's a trauma movie and we're doing this show. I think that's a great excuse and opportunity to talk about it. All right. So do we want to do, um, do we want to do two episodes and do like Mother's Day and the remake? Um, I don't really, have you seen the remake yet? I haven't. I have seen the remake. I will preface this here. I really enjoy it. I don't think the remake needs its own episode. I think it's something we can do and okay. like, like touch upon at the end. Of oh, okay, the cool. it's a, for everyone listening, it's a good movie. I highly recommend checking out the remake. So for next week, we're going to do the original 1979 Charlie Kaufman Mother's Day and then the remake, which is notable that it's the only movie thus far that uh, the only trauma movie thus far that has been remade. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, they keep trying to remake Toxic Avenger, but it just hasn't happened yet. But yep. We've talked about that already, we but did talk about the that. only one that's actually gotten released is the Mother's Day remake. Yeah. Wild. All right, so Mother's Day next week. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you.